0: International travel hasn't been so easy over the past 18 months because of the COVID pandemic, but thanks to the power of the podcast, in this episode of the Reenactors Corner, I'm crossing the Atlantic to talk to one of the UK's most knowledgeable and inspiring reenactors. Still only 24, he's been reenacting since he was 10 years old, and two years ago, started his very own unit, which is doing a pretty unique impression in the world of World War II German reenacting. Stay tuned, because I know that you're going to enjoy this one. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Reenactors Corner podcast. This is Chris here again. Uh, I'm pleased to have on here today a special guest. It is uh, Ludwig Topf. Ludwig, welcome to the program and thanks for coming on. Thanks very much, Chris. So I guess to start, why don't you just um, kind of introduce yourself and and talk a little bit about your background in uh, World War II, how you got interested in it and uh, how you got involved in reenacting. So I, I started reenacting
1: about uh, 14 years ago now uh, when I was, well I'm, I'm 24 now so you can get an idea of, of how long ago that was for me. Um, and I saw a, a unit portraying Grossdeutschland at a small military affair in Northern England and immediately realized that this this is what I wanted to do. Um, so I, I asked about joining and immediately ended up joining them as a sort of Volkssturm. Um, and it was, it was through that that it's just essentially never stopped from there, and I've, I've sort of gone through different stages of reenacting, certainly not always very good, but uh, I've been in, in German reenacting ever since then. Uh, it mainly came through my grandfather's interest, as, as he was already, always interested in the German side of things, uh, which sort of carried on to me. But um, yeah, that's essentially where it all started for me. And uh, now I'm leading a, a different group doing a completely different impression, a unique impression, uh, which I'm looking forward to discussing as well.
0: Cool. Um, I think a Volksturm impression is really interesting. I also, uh, this is something I kind of have dabbled with in the past for anybody listening who's not Familiar with what Volkssturm is, it was the late war German civilian militia um, that saw service during the war in, in its final months. What, what was it that drew you to that impression? Well, because I was so young and I was too young to p-
1: portray a frontline uh, infantryman, the reenacting association which I joined said that it would be more appropriate for me to portray uh, a young member of the Volkssturm. Now, the main problem was is that this association was then and and still is today very sensitive with regards to the political side of the Nazi regime so they didn't have any Hitler youth uniforms or anything like that which might perhaps have been more authentic or appropriate for uh, a young Volkstern man so with that born in mind, I had a sort of bizarre combination of, of random bits of kit, uh, and then very fortunately was allowed to use an MP3 008, blank firing MP3 008, which was, you know, when I, when I was that young, that was, that was a lot of fun. Um, but it, that, that was essentially what, what, what brought me to the function, and then later on, once I was old enough, I was allowed to do uh,
0: Grossdeutschland as a, as a regular infantryman. So that was um, kind of the impression of the reenacting association that you had joined? Yeah, so
1: the the group that I joined was called uh, Eighth Company Großdeutschland, uh, and they portrayed sort of the the archetypical Vakregiment, um, smart uniforms, the cuff title, all, all of that sort of jazz. Uh, but obviously, being so young, I wasn't able to to uh, look the part, as it were, which is why they had me doing uh, Volkstum.
0: So how long how long had you been reenacting before you eventually went on to uh, start your own group? So, uh,
1: I think I started in 2007, and then after being part of various different groups and portraying various different things, um, I left a GD unit of which I was a part in 2019 with some similarly-minded members of the group to split off and form our own group. Uh, And initially, we were planning to portray the 18th Volksgrenadier Division to do something uh, that wasn't a named unit, that wasn't uh, necessarily elite. Uh, and so we we still intended to do that, but we, we ended up being sidetracked after uh, starting to read about the various Felder and formations, the SA units, or essentially SA units, which were a part of the army. Uh, and that led to us forming the only group in the UK, and I think possibly the only group in the world at the moment, which portrays the Panzergrenadier Division, Feldherr and Halle, or at least part of it.
0: So you guys got started, I guess, shortly before... Uh, the COVID pandemic really got underway or, you know, that must have uh, really affected forming your group. Is that the case?
1: In in a sense, it did affect it, but it was also a positive as well as a negative. So when we started, I, I would certainly say that you can compare pictures of when our group started to how it is today and you can see a very visible difference and that's because a lot of our members had a great deal of time over the course of the pandemic, over the course of lockdown in the UK, uh, to put a lot of effort into their impressions, to work on them, to improve bits of kit, uh, to spend time weathering or uh, changing bits of kit which which they didn't feel were appropriate. It gave us time to, to research further, to consolidate the impression, uh, and also to research the the actual unit itself, to to build up our knowledge of Felder and Haller and the history behind it. Uh, so I think before, before the first lockdown in March 2020, we had one event, uh, and that is sort of for us the... Um, the, the the beginning of our unit and you can see when you compare pictures in March 2020 to I think the, the next event that we did was July 2020 you can see the huge difference in that period but where people have changed items of kit they've changed their impressions and, and brought things forward uh, and then I, I think after the next lockdown which was November uh, our first event was in April this year so you can see that jump again uh, in a lot of things so I think it's been a benefit as well as also quite traumatic in many ways, not being able to actually attend
0: events. Sure. What's, um, what's the situation over there now? We're recording this in October of 2021. Are, are you able to do reenactments? Do you guys have upcoming reenactments to look forward to? Yeah, well, we're quite lucky because we, we've managed to get quite a
1: few um, immersion and tactical weekends scheduled for over the course of the Christmas period and, and into January. Uh, we have had an almost non-stop summer attending events, I think almost every single weekend uh, from the beginning of June right through until uh, the end of September. So we've had a lot of events. I'm not saying by any means that those events have always been particularly good, but whether it be uh, training weekends or public events or private battles, we've, we've attended a lot of different events of varying quality and had quite a lot of fun doing it. But I think everybody's a bit exhausted now, so we've certainly made up for that. Uh, however many months it was locked down in the house.
0: So what, what do you guys focus on? Do you focus on um, public events or or private events? Or do you prefer to, uh, you know, kind of keep it a, a mix and not emphasize one or the other? We Well, I think as a group, we're start, starting to come towards a consensus
1: that we need to move away from investing too much time in public events, which don't really... Um, I mean, you can have 10 public events and they all essentially blur into one. Unless there's something particularly special about them, they're all more or less the same. Whereas if you have uh, good sort of immersion slash uh, private private weekends, those can be a lot more interesting. They can be a lot more varied and they're worth the time and effort that you put into them. So I think into the next season, what we'll probably do is reduce the number of public events we do drastically and try to replace them with at least one good
0: uh, private weekend every month, if not more. It's interesting to hear you say that because that mirrors kind of where my group is at exactly. Um, Even though I'm sure the scene that we're in is is very different from uh, on the other side of the ocean there. Um, In my unit also, we've made the decision to really heavily de-emphasize public events for a lot of reasons. Um, You know, as you say, they really they can they they kind of can run together and they sort of can feel like work you know um yeah you're answering questions from tourists all day um maybe it maybe it's i mean when you first start doing them it can be fun to interact with the public and to meet enthusiasts and answer questions but uh when the novelty of doing that wears off i find it can really be like i say it can feel like work um And then the other thing that we have going on here in the United States, and maybe that's happening where you live as well, is that there is this very much increased sensitivity towards any kind of symbols or basically anything that could be construed as having anything to do with white supremacy, right? And the swastika is certainly uh, part of that in the cultural mindset. And so, you know, my desire to go out there wearing what people would call a Nazi uniform, and be in public where people, anyone who wants to come by can take a picture of me and and put that on the internet anywhere they want, Uh, that has less appeal now than maybe it did in the past.
1: Yeah, I would agree. I'd agree with that. Absolutely. I think that public events will, because of political developments, probably run their course in, in, in the future. That isn't necessarily a bad thing, but public events are useful in certain elements. They're useful for making your unit uh, available to other reenactors in terms of, for example, you know, if you, if you introduce yourselves at the show and perhaps they might want to join. That's one element, and they're also useful socially. But I think that broadly speaking, apart from those those two things, they they, they don't have much function now. And as you say, there are a lot of effort for not too much um, enjoyment. And I find that talking with members of the public. It can be interesting if you have that one really unique conversation where you you speak to somebody and, and you feel like you've actually engaged with them. But generally speaking, it, it's just explaining the basics of, of weapons and equipment to people, which if you like doing that, if you like running through um, how a car 98 works or, or what a mess kit is, uh 10 times a day that's perfectly fine but if you you want to have discussions about the history of of the unit that you portray or or the general history of the second world war that can be um i'm not saying that members of the public are stupid you know but it can be quite difficult to to get that kind of level of discussion with them
0: i totally agree i mean that's that's not what most people really want when they go in my experience the, the spectators at the events they're certainly you know i wouldn't call them stupid i mean uh most of the time, the events, the public events that we do, it is just a World War II event. So everybody that's going there, all the spectators, everyone who attends, is there because they're interested in history. And I think that's a great thing. Um, but as you say, a lot of times they're just, they're just really interested in the details of the material culture and the weapons maybe that they know from video games. And um, I could probably count on one hand – the number of times that I in 20 years have had like a substantial conversation with anybody at a public display about what World War II meant or why it was fought or or any of these kind of, you know, greater concepts and instead it's more, yeah, we slept here, this is a real fire and, um, you know, I, I like the points that you made a lot about the value of a public event, that the social get-together aspect of it can be fun and also valuable, and um, and that I think that reenactment units do have kind of a, an ethical mandate to make themselves available in some way. I mean, we're all collating and collecting all of this great information, and if we're not making ourselves available in a way that people who are interested can, can kind of access what we've assembled, I think it's kind of a waste. Um, but I think one could argue that Um, units can make themselves accessible virtually. They can write articles or just take photographs of what they're doing and share those photographs um, on the internet so that other enthusiasts can find that information that way. Um, And certainly with regard to the social aspect, um, I would love to see larger numbers of people attending immersion events and tacticals and and maybe that could be you know there's no reason why you can't socialize say at the end of the day on saturday um you know after a, the immersion part of an event might conclude so i i would prefer to do it that way
1: yeah absolutely uh, that's definitely true I think the one big draw for public events is definitely things like the beer tent where everybody can get around and and chat with each other and have a drink and and, um, just chill out together and especially after the the pandemic or sort of towards the end of the pandemic depending on where you are. um, I think that's that's been a really useful thing for people to finally get back together. It would be interesting to see if we could have sort of the equivalent of that but a private thing for reenactors if somebody ever could organize something like that. I think that would be a lot of fun. Um, if you could take the public element out of it but it's it's whether that would be possible or whether whether that would be worth doing, but I certainly think after a after a private event it would be worth investigating doing something like
0: that. I remember many years ago at one of the first public display events I did um, we had invested a tremendous amount of effort and time to set up our big tents and bring all of our vehicles and our large equipment and and have all of our guys come out to an event that was an air show and this air show was very popular they don't have reenactors there anymore but back when we used to do this event i mean we would just be answering questions all day i think they had hundreds of thousands of people a day went there to see the aircraft and uh i remember we were all kind of exhausted at the end of one of the days and some of the guys were like having a beer or just trying to unwind and uh Somebody said, You know, what would it be like if we spend all of this time and energy and just set all of this stuff up in a field somewhere and just hung out? And I was like, Yeah, why don't we do that? You know, and that kind of was sort of a, a revelation a long time ago for me that kind of made me really question, um, you know, why. Why do I do these public events? Is it more fun? Would it be more fun to just do it private? But I agree with with what you said earlier that I think that by and large, certainly in many parts of the United States and and where I live, I think um, public events just you're just not going to be able to to have them um, in most cases you're You're not going to be able to convince people that. If you're choosing to dress up as a World War Two German soldier for fun, that that's not somehow, uh, you know, problematic or offensive. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, I, I think that a lot of reenactors lose sight of, of the realities of the Second World War and the realities of, of the regime that, that stood behind or stood in charge of, as it were, the soldiers that they're trying to portray it 's fair enough telling yourself and, and telling everybody around you that it's it 's apolitical and that, um, that 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 they were just soldiers and perhaps that 's true perhaps it 's not that i 'm sure that 's something we could debate until uh, you know uh, the end of days, but the reality is is that people think of the German soldiers as Nazi soldiers. They think of them as uh, fighting for Hitler, which is not necessarily wrong, but it's it's the way that the public perception of it is. And that's not going to change no matter how many times you post on the internet that your impression is apolitical or how many times that you, you tell somebody at a public event that they shouldn't be doing the Hitler salute to you. that That's absolutely never going to change. Um, and I think that once reenactors get that, maybe they might sort of be more... Um, susceptible to the, the, the moving towards uh, private events, or they might face the reality of it better, I think. But I, I wouldn't be opposed to... Um having you know one or two public shows a year that are perhaps more carefully regulated, that are, are more carefully signposted about what members of the public are going to see when they, they enter the event. I don't think it would make a huge difference, but perhaps it's something that event organizers could do to alleviate some of the, um, the risks of members of the public attending who, for whatever reason, might not understand that
0: uh, an ordinary German soldier's uniform does in fact have swastikas on it. Sure. Yeah, I have, uh, in my group, we kind of have, have kicked around a sort of a policy. And I think, you know, there might be times that we might make an exception to this. But in general, at, at this point, we will only attend public events if they are put on uh, by a museum or are at like a legitimate historical site as part of sort of an overall educational uh agenda on the part of the museum so that way it's it's not like look we're just here doing this for fun um, and to put on a spectacle for you um, it instead it would be like we're, we're we've partnered with this museum to um, you know be a part of this educational curriculum that the museum has decided to undertake um, I think that that would give it maybe some more. Legitimacy, but but even then, you know, it's it still makes me a little bit nervous because uh, anybody can take a photograph of me in my World War II uniform and and post it on the internet in whatever context that they want. Um, and also, I can't control the other people who are at this event. So if there's somebody, maybe uh, some misinformed or misguided person, or just someone who doesn't understand. The importance of you know how all of this stuff looks or perceptions right and decides to start talking about uh that the nazis weren't really that bad or some other uh horrific thing like that you know i just it would be horrible to be associated with something like that
1: yeah i I hear reenactors german reenactors regularly make comments you know they'll, they'll be talking to a member of the public and they'll say something along the lines of um Oh well, you know the, the the Soviets were were just as bad, or the Soviets were worse. So, and it's like you can't say things like that because even though, and I can I I can sort of understand where they're coming from, but it just sounds like a defence of 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 uh, of Nazism of of, of Germany. And it, although they're trying to come across from perhaps an honest position, it just doesn't it doesn't fly that way. And if somebody were to record that or to or to take it somewhere. You know, you, you know exactly what it's going to be. And, and in in twenty eighteen, there were several stories in in the press uh, over here in the UK. The Daily Mail ran a story that was actually quite, I wouldn't say favourable, but quite um, fair towards reenactors. And 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 you know, the, these SS reenactors had agreed to be interviewed by the Mail and to be featured in the article in photographs. Um, and even though they they presented their point well, I. I doubt very much that it would make a difference to to anybody reading it because it, you know, they see the SS runes and they see the swastika and, and that's just the way that that, they, that it is for them, you know. Um, yeah,
0: it's almost like any attempt at justification just proves that that you're wrong. You know, um, it's like uh, okay, you're you're justifying this, so that means you're aware on some level that what you're doing is like morally wrong. You know, I think they would say. Um, yeah it's you cannot win this kind of stuff yeah and perhaps you shouldn't
1: because I, I, in fairness and again this is what i think a lot of reenactors forget is that although they would like a lot of the time to say oh it's you know we're just soldiers we're just betraying soldiers um things like you know the clean wehrmacht myth and another similar um sort of post-war myths have, have largely been debunked and the, the crimes of, of the regime and also of its soldiers are, are pretty widely known at this stage so you can still remember the history and and try to portray it correctly, but also by not getting into that argument, which is always going to be a losing battle. It's better to just accept the realities than it is to try and and argue against history, I think.
0: Do you think that the situation with um, negative press or the potential of negative press in the UK is is getting worse? I think that if... If there is something that happens in any capacity
1: that the press can take advantage of to create a story that will like any other story that the press takes a hold of uh, generate clicks for them on their on their online their online pages or or generate some sort of interest, they would absolutely take advantage of it. The story in two thousand and eighteen actually grew out of the fact that somebody had made a complaint at a military vehicle show. Because somebody was selling a one of the the Jewish, the yellow stars, the identification stars. Uh, somebody was supposedly selling one of those and somebody had made a complaint and then this had, had wound its way up the chain and eventually the press got a hold of it. The reality was is that it was on display as part of a display, um, not commemorating, as, commemorating is probably the wrong word, but but um, in memory of the Holocaust. And these people had, had completely got the wrong idea, or at least that, that this is how it's been relayed to me um, secondhand. But anyway, it generated this massive media storm, and of course, the media in reality is is not bothered at all. It's just a way to to, to generate clicks and to generate interest in the story that they're peddling. Um, I think that reenactors have to be, or at least they should be, extremely careful. Obviously, they're not because I see things happening uh, at reenacting events all the time, which could cause massive issues. I've seen um, film crews which you don't know the uh what what it is what their agenda is i've seen film crews invited to private events when you don't know what their agenda is which has caused absolute chaos uh with people running and screaming and saying oh it's vice vice has turned up they're here to do a hit piece on us um and and things like that you know you've just got to be extremely careful but that would just, that would rely on people using
0: common sense which i don't i don't think is likely to start anytime soon No, it's tough to kind of balance. Um, You know, there are a lot of reenactors out there and a lot of human beings out there in general who like the idea of media attention and being able to tell their friends and family that they're in a documentary or on TV. And, um, you know, maybe they really don't realize how politically charged all of this stuff has become. Maybe they don't really realize that there is, like, justifiable reasons for people to take offense at, uh, displays of Nazi regalia. Right. And, and some of those people, if, you know, if journalists contact them, they would, they would be thrilled to have a camera crew, I think, out with them for a weekend. And, uh, but the reality is, is that you can't control what the journalists are going to report. You can't control who they're going to talk to, what they're going to say. And, you know, I'll be very candid here. Um, I would be lying if I, if I denied that it's probably true that at every event that happens in the world, you could find someone willing to make some comments that come across as being tone deaf at best or like wildly offensive, you know? Yeah,
1: absolutely. So. Absolutely. I think you're especially right with regards to the journalist element and the fact that you can't control what they decide to do with the footage or the uh, recordings or the information that they take. There were you know I know that there was the case in I can't remember how long ago so was now, but the Fachmieger unit in the UK invited Vice to come and do a, a documentary with them, and that had predictable results. Um, and you, you just can't control it, so it's, it's in the first place it's not worth engaging in that sort of um, discourse with them, which is again why the private events I think will will come into their own in the future if they haven't already.
0: I talked to somebody who was involved with um, coordinating with those vice journalists at that event that you mentioned, and um, I saw some of the communication between him and the journalists, and the journalists basically lied and were misleading. And, you know, we're presenting it like we're going to be making a promotional film for your uh, reenactment, and when in reality what came out kind of had the feeling of, of a hit piece. But, you know, um, it's funny about that Vice magazine uh Documentary piece, whatever you want to call this thing, um, is that a lot of people were really upset by it. But I watched it, and yeah, there were some people there that made some comments that I thought were inappropriate. And you know, I can't endorse everything that they showed, but um, but I watched that, and I at the end of it, I was thinking, you know, if I wasn't a reenactor and I watched this, I still might be interested in getting involved in reenacting, having seen it. It's like they almost couldn't help but show that, like, it did look like fun you know you know what I mean
1: yeah yeah no I know absolutely and I remember when that video came out and it's probably still the case if you go back and look at it on YouTube the comments were almost universally in support of the reenactors which was brilliant to see but I don't think that necessarily represents a cross-section of people I I think that you know people that are looking at this sort of video on YouTube are more than likely going to be sympathetic to reenactors anyway uh, and and you know the broad section of people shown that sort of material, for example, if it was on on national TV for whatever reason, I'm not saying that it would be, if it, but if it was, I can't imagine the the broad mass of people would be as sympathetic if they saw that. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but that that, that just seems to be the way it, it, it seems to me, especially with older people that might immediately take offence at people choosing to um, people choosing to dress up like that.
0: No, I agree with you totally. Uh, you know, I think in many ways the reason why public events are allowed to continue in America at the scale at which they do is because the majority of the population never hears about these things and doesn't know anything about this hobby or that it exists. And if more people were aware of it, I think we would have more pushback against it and it would be more difficult. Yeah, Absolutely. What about um, railway events? That's something that a lot of people think about, I think, uh, when they think about events in the UK, you know, as someone who's never been to an event in the UK, you know, I've seen pictures of all kinds of events, including these railway events that you guys have. Uh, Have many of those happened since the the lockdowns were lifted? I'm aware of some that have
1: happened, which I haven't attended. And uh, I mean, I know that people listening to this will probably be grinning. As as, we're, as they're listening, with regards to railway events and and the absolute state of railway events in general, and they do certainly carry a reputation of being just abhorrent and and I think that's certainly justifiable. I've attended a lot of railway events over the years. I'm aware of a few that have gone ahead this year. I'm aware of a few that have been cancelled. The ones that have gone ahead have essentially been the same that they've always been, um, and and really you know if you if you if you haven't attended a, a railway event as you say you haven't missed out on anything at all it's it's not this mythical thing of you know other than other than the absolute state of of the, the groups that go i don't think it's particularly something uh, something that you're missing out on
0: well in your opinion is there any way to redeem these things or you know are is this just a style of reenacting event that is maybe kind of doomed i mean i organize an event that takes
1: place in a rail yard um and it certainly has some elements which aren't brilliant, but the location is perfect uh, for reenactors to take advantage of it to put their displays in the rail yard uh, in a way that that looks good, that looks authentic, or at least partially authentic. You know, to, to set up their Zeltbahn next to the rail yard, it could look like a railhead, uh, something similar to that. And we, we try to make the best use of the site that we have, and we try to police what the groups are doing as best we can. Um, and you know it's generating a lot of interest uh, in the coming year which is it's, it's fantastic because i'm i'm trying to get more groups to come uh, better groups to come where possible and and to work off of that unfortunately i think the problem with a lot of the real 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 um railway events is that you just get the organizers open them up to so many different groups and they cram them all in. And it's more like a car boot sale than a, a reenactment. There's just there's just display after display after display piled up next to each other. I think maybe reducing the amount of groups and trying to do um perhaps a theme for the weekend or or to have groups that relate to each other. They don't necessarily all have to be German or all have to be allied, but they could be in the same sort of period of the Second World War uh, and have some connection to each other in some way and, and try to work that in I think that would at least be better for the reenactors rather than just having for example you've got an Africa core group next to uh, the I don't know the Hohenstaufen um, or something like that which is, is something that you see and, and it just you know an Africa core group in the UK anyway at a railway it doesn't doesn't really seem to make very much sense anyhow so I would definitely say that you, you could look at it and, and try to work on it. But I, I think it would probably be more effort, broadly speaking,
0: than it's actually worth. Sure. No, I think that's a very valid point. Well, let's talk a little bit about your group. Um, going back to that, you mentioned that your group formed sort of as a split with some like-minded people leaving um, the group that you were in. It was the same with the way that my group started. Um, All of the founding members of my group were originally in my previous group. And um, there were some different ideas within that group about how to go forward. And um, we had an idea, myself and some others had an idea that was kind of incongruous with what the other people wanted to do. So we went our own separate ways. And uh, there was a little bit of hurt feelings. You know, I tried to mitigate that as much as possible by... You know, reaching out to people. Maybe I could have done a better job of it. Um, but years later, uh, we remain on good terms with the unit that we split away from. And I tend to think that these kind of splits are inevitable in reenactment groups. Over time, because there are so many different approaches to reenacting, and there are so many different ideas and different styles, and I think it's kind of normal for people to come up with different visions that maybe are are more appealing to to people within their own little circle. Um, what, what? How? How did that go for you?
1: Yeah, I, I think that that mirrors essentially exactly what happened with us, with our group. And I think that just just touching on the subject, I think that every group will eventually probably reach a critical mass, at which point it's it's inevitably going to split. I think ways you could probably avoid that is by keeping a group at a certain size or trying to uh, ensure in whatever way you can that the individuals in the group work well with each other and they're all working to the same goal. How you would do that you know that might be a bit of a, a pipe dream, but it would certainly be worth trying to keep a group together by by having focused goals and bringing in people that want to focus on those goals. The way that the, the way that it went for our group is that we were part of a group, as I say, portraying Großdeutschland, uh, and they had a sort of family unit set up. So they would have um, what was supposed to be the front line camp, and then they would have women and children on the camp as well. And uh, you know there were different different ways of going about it, and, and different levels of. I suppose, effort into into the impressions going in. And it, it led to a very lopsided group uh, with a lot of cliques forming and, and people doing different things, which didn't really work. It wasn't very well meshed together. And we originally didn't want to split off. We wanted to try and work from the inside of the group to try and improve it, to try and change the way that it worked. Um, but it was doomed to failure and eventually after several public events where it was it just seemed to be getting worse and worse uh, we decided that the the best sort of way to do it is just a clean break obviously it would be painful we knew it would be painful and it certainly was but it would be worth it in the long run and um, we all we were all very polite about it we we weren't nasty we weren't unreasonable we left the group we made it clear that it wasn't about personal reasons it was entirely just about the fact that we wanted a new approach to reenacting obviously as as in your case, as I think in every case with this, that caused a lot of, of a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of ruffled feathers, and I think um, perhaps a bit of an inferiority complex on their part as well in regards to this and and, and the way that they they saw it. And there was a lot of kind of on our end, we said, you know, we'll just keep progressing, we'll just keep working on our own stuff and focus on our on our own group and, and not worry about them. Uh, and not make any comments to them, not make anything against them in terms of comments or or posts online or anything like that. Not that we would anyway, but just to be absolutely clear with ourselves. And there were comments on their end, there were sort of sly little comments, little digs that that we could hear coming through, either through sort of secondhand from other people or or overhearing at events. that has calmed down a lot now. It's nice that we're sort of able to talk with them. But I think there is a kind of undercurrent of resentment in, in all of our engagements. I think that there is an element of, of that they resent that we've left to do something which they, I think, hoped would fail. There were a lot of comments about you know our group sort of not, not taking off, and, and the opposite has happened, thankfully. Uh, and I think that they, they wanted us to fail. and that they were expecting us and they kind of have a resentment that we didn't and we didn't sort of come back to them with our, you know, cap in our hands and say, can we we come back, please? So I wouldn't say it's the end of the world that we're we're not 100% on good terms with them, but I I wouldn't say that we're, you know, like a lot of groups where they they literally hate each other and they can't be at the same event with each other and and, and all of that. We're luckily not at that sort of stage. But I think that, as you say, every event, uh, pardon me, every group, I think it will inevitably if it reaches a certain point will will split and I think the splits are in many cases a good thing because it allows people to form their own groups which adopt a different approach and and sometimes that approach will be good. It would be in an ideal world brilliant if if everybody could just work together and we could just have big huge groups that you could you could try and take things up to you know platoon level to maybe in some in some sort of utopian world a battalion level but unfortunately it it is it is not the second world war and it's not the real german army and people have free will and they also have the ability to to leave and also to argue with each other and all the other things that come up as a part of human relations they're not forced to be together and and to like each other and to work together so i think that group splitting is just it's part of reenacting it's
0: part of any hobby that involves this sort of level of working together i think sure yeah the group that we left wound up um it's they're bigger now than they were before we left and i think we those of us who left were in a sense holding that group back because there were people there who had a unified vision that was different from our unified vision and when that conflict disappeared because we were gone i think they were able to focus more on you know doing things in the style that they wanted to do them in and it wound up being better for everybody basically
1: yeah, I've seen the group that we left bounce back, which is in a way nice to see. Um, and I do I do wish them the best. I do hope that they grow and, and they continue to grow in, into their own sort of vision. Um, but we had to be absolutely clear that their vision wasn't our vision and, and that we wanted to pursue something else, um, which I'm overjoyed to have done. I, I, I wouldn't change anything at all. I wouldn't change the group that I formed or, or the people that are in it. Uh, I think that it, all of it, even the stress of, of sort of leaving the group, was absolutely worth it. And I, if I, if it came down to it and I had to, you know, in some way, or way I had to go through that situation again to, to keep the group as it, as it needs to be, I would absolutely do that without hesitation.
0: I feel exactly the same. I'm really glad that, that you know, I left to form something new. And every year that goes by, it's now been seven years or something, but every year that goes by, um just reinforces my belief that it was like the the right thing to do and uh i love being able to take the vision that we have and and make it a reality with like-minded people who have a unified purpose um i think that's so important in a reenactment group
1: yeah absolutely absolutely I think that that's a big focus for my group and and we definitely need to work on. I mean, there's a lot that we need to work on improving. I don't think there's ever a stage at which you can say that you've perfected everything and there's nothing left to to work on. I think we have a huge amount of work ahead of us. Um, And I think we could certainly work on, uh, I think, sculpting our vision so that it makes more sense to all of the members of the group and attaining the same goals that, that we want to attain or aiming to attain those goals. But I think we're definitely on the right path with regards to that. So what is your vision? What is your group about? I think that the, the main element is, is that we sort of got into is portraying this, this unique impression of of and Halle, of the connection between the SA and the Wehrmacht which a lot of people are unaware of and, and we've sort of been blessed in a way to, to take on this this unique impression um, which so far as my way it's only been done in Hungary and, and Belgium uh, and I, I don't think those two groups are still running so I think we're probably the only group in the world at the moment that's portraying Feldenhalla uh, and I think that I'd like to build that out into an impression which can can demonstrate the the formation from its beginning to its end uh, and also to do that as, as accurately as possible and I think most of the other members of the group would share that and I think that we definitely need to work on, on obviously, the the, the kit outlook and, and and the basic things like that. But I was listening to the last podcast, I think it was, and there was talk about um, people that, that can't take themselves seriously and, and they don't, you know, when they're at events, they're still joking around when it's inappropriate. I'd like to see our group mold into a certain stage where all of the members understand when it's appropriate to be laughing and joking about uh, and then... They can focus completely on on trying to get into the, you know, as, as you describe it, the zone or, or being zoney, that sort of thing, where, where they're completely focused on what they're doing and uh, there's nothing else that, that can be distracting them. I'd love to see that in the long run. So I think that should be one of our aims as well, uh, if we could all get into that kind of headspace. But I think that is probably going to evolve. A lot more work than you know, just replacing an item of a kit or or you know, changing changing a, a particular mess kit, or something something silly like that. I think it requires a lot more effort and a lot more uh, focus, which which is what I'd like to
0: see us do. Yeah, you're describing a, like a unit culture thing, you know, and that's a very very hard thing to to create in a sense because you can't just write down on a piece of paper okay well we're going to do things this way and then that's how it is you know it's like a behavior a group dynamic that has to be created and that takes that takes work and takes time
1: yeah i think i think it will take a lot of work and
0: it will certainly take a lot of
1: time but i I think if we all sort of knock our heads together and people focus on it i think it's certainly achievable to imbue that kind of unit culture it just it's it's how we get about that. I, I'm, I haven't quite worked it out yet, but I think we're on our way there.
0: So your group has a lot of young people in it. Is that is that true?
1: Yeah, I, I mean, we, we have I think the youngest member of our group now is, is 17. And I think the oldest member will be in his 40s. So we we don't discriminate by age. Uh, and we also we, we, we sort of try and have the the historical evidence, as it were, uh, to back up the different ages in the formation. Which you, I mean, you can see men in their the middle ages serving in, in what is supposed to be an elite formation, and so on. Which I think kind of removes the the strength of a lot of the, the reenactorisms around that. So we have we have various different ages in the group, but I would say sort of the average age is probably about twenty. I would say. Okay. Yeah, that's that's very young. Yeah, I, I, a lot of people say that when we're at events, especially public events, people will come up and say, "You know, you look like the uh, archetyp- archetypical group of German soldiers." You know, all young young men, uh, reasonably fit, which which is nice to hear in a way. But I don't think it's necessarily the most accurate reflection of of the unit that we portray. But it's it's nonetheless a nice thing to hear because I I know that people gripe on about older people reenacting, which I I don't think is by any means a problem. Uh, but I have uh, it's it's nice to hear that, that people look at
0: us that way. That is cool. Uh, Yeah, there is a visual um, appeal to that. Um, And we could, of course, we could probably do a whole episode talking about just this and, you know, older people in reenacting and what was the reality of Wehrmacht units. Um, But I think the thing is, a lot of people probably their main, the main media that they have consumed that pertains to the Wehrmacht is basically like Nazi propaganda images that did tend to show, you know, young fit, heroic soldiers, whereas the reality, especially in 1944 and 1945, was, was, was very different. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have
1: some really good pictures of the division, Feldherrnhalle Halle, forming up in uh, Nines in France in 1943. And there's a great picture of of three guys. They've all got the cuff title. They've all got, you know, the the, the usual um, SA Sports Habs all of the sort of Felder and stuff that you always see with them. And it's three men, and they've all got to be, they've either aged rapidly or they've all got to be middle-aged. They must be, you know, uh, 40, 40, maybe 50 years old. So I think that kind of blows out of the water, this idea that everybody in these elite units was, was, um, you know, 20 years old or whatever. And I think that when you look at the,
0: the unit sort of records, you see that anywhere in any case? Sure. Um, over my years of collecting original documents, I have had some Feldher and groupings, and something that struck me was kind of how um, sort of complex this unit was, where it underwent so many changes and expanded over time to become this, you know, huge formation, you know, originally having been a much smaller um, force Um, How much research has to go into this for you guys to um, really create a realistic portrayal of this unit that is very complex and also kind of largely unknown among reenactors?
1: I mean, you know, if 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 needed, I could go through the the history of the formation from its its found sort of its essential beginnings in 1923 right through to the end in 1945, but. For us, it's more, you know, finding where they were operating, what they were doing, where they're operating, what sort of state that the division was in. So the division itself was wiped out several times, and you can, I've got quite a few pictures of the division essentially being rebuilt at its Ersatzbrigade And you can see the kind of age groups that were involved there, a lot of the older NCOs that were obviously in training positions, and then all of the new young recruits who've either come directly to the ersatz- uh, and Ausbildungsbrigade or they've come from the ss standarte Um so we we try to do as much research on on what you know if if we say that we're going to do for example um the battles in the Hungarian plains in in october september october nineteen forty four um we'll try and, and look at how the division looked then we'll try and look at you know what sort of state they were in what sort of strength they were in and and, and try to base our sort of impression around that as best that we can. The problem is is that as with a lot of units there's you can't just go like okay um, they were fighting in Hungary let's go and look at uh, pictures of Haller in Hungary because they're simply there they, they are very few or they or there are pictures of officers for example there are pictures of uh, wilhelm scherning that commanded he commanded the fusilier regiment Haller, but obviously he's not a representation for the entire division um it helps to look at, at pictures of them that we do have from the period in sort of what looks like when they're rebuilding, as I say, or they're in a sort of barracks conditions to get an idea. But I don't think until we, if we're ever very lucky and, and come across actual um, combat pictures for exactly what it is that we're looking at, which we only have for a few cases, uh, it can be quite difficult. It's, it's more about approximation than anything
0: else. Sure. It's the same with my group. Um, we have very, very few photographs of the group that we actually portray. And I don't think that many such photos even exist or ever existed just based on, you know, the the timeline of the availability of film and, uh, you know, when this unit was formed. So there, there does have to be that, I think, level of approximation where you have to take all the documentation that you have and sort of. Uh, melt it down and, and draw some extrapolations from what you have that, um, you know, so there's, there's an element of judgment that goes into that stuff. There's a, an aspect that can be arbitrary, I think. Um, But I think, you know, it should start at least with some kind of documentation, whatever, whatever it is that you have. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Uh, If you can get an idea of of how they looked, perhaps before combat or after combat, that might give you a certain idea as to um, what was common throughout the division. So we, we see that in certain pictures of, of Felder and Halle rebuilding in Elbing near Danzig, they have uh, the helmet. The helmet net for them is almost ubiquitous, and they also interestingly they put foliage in it as well, which I, I I hadn't seen before. And a lot of a lot of times the helmet net is just the helmet net on its own, without foliage in it, for example. And I think that a lot of this. Uh, you know these texni- techniques that were applied in training will have then translated into their experience at the front line. Things that they would have done there. So we try to we try to look at, for example, you know you've got pictures of them assembling in September 1944. How how would they look at the front in, in Hung- you know in Hungary in October 1944? And I imagine that that gives you a good idea of of how they might have looked. Um, so it is a bit, of, as you say, it's a bit of guesswork, a bit of making a judgment. But it certainly I- pays off.
0: Yeah, I, I love that detail about the, the hominets with foliage. I think when you can find a little detail like that that is unit-specific and then incorporate that into your impression, I think that's such a win.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, every single time I see a, a picture in, I, you know, I've, I've kind of hoarded as, as many original pictures, as many original documents, whatever it is that I can find that I can uh, you know, afford at the time, it just gets bought straight away. And I'm always delighted to see a new detail with the Division or or any of its uh, subsidiary is probably the right word, formations, um, and there's always something that just blows your mind. I mean, that you know, a lot of people don't know that there were a considerable number of Fallschirmjäger that were also SA Standarte Feldernhaler, uh, and they were authorized to wear the cuff title as well in certain cases. So you can see, um, you know, Fallschirmjägers with the, the Feldernhaler cuff title. And I think a lot of people, if they encountered that for the first time, because of how you know um forgotten as it were this unit is they they might not even know what that is and it might you know that might lead them on into it which is a fascinating way to look at it
0: sure um speaking of the cuff title was that something that uh you guys had to have made or was there like an available source for the felter and Halla distinctive cuff title um that was usable for your group so we went through several stages of working out exactly how the
1: cuff title appeared. Um, a lot of people mistakenly believe that it's similar to the GD cuff title, uh, which is, a lot of people think it's felt. I'm pretty sure it's, it's it's not actually felt. It's a different material, but I'm not 100% sure. But it, it, a lot of people think it's felt. Uh, it's not. It's, the the Felt and Hala cuff titles are very similar to the SS ones. Um, and it took us a while to figure out how we were going to, to do this impression with the lack of... Uh, immediately available for Renheller cuff titles. Luckily, when we started out, there was actually a manufacturer making them. Now, these cuff titles were certainly not ideal. They were okay, I guess, as a a starter. We found another manufacturer and switched out to those, but I'm currently in the process of arranging for another manufacturer to um, take the original cuff title that I have and use that as a template, a sort of probe piece as it were uh, to create cuff titles that will be as accurate as possible and also they'll be unique to our group as well. So that's the next stage for me. The ones that we have right now will do for the time being um, but my focus is that the the cuff title which is obviously one of the most integral pieces needs to be um, the best possible quality that it can be and when we've compared the cuff title that we use the reproduction cuff title with the original cuff title you can immediately see the complete difference um, in quality of construction not necessarily in in the design the design isn't necessarily wrong it's just you can immediately tell that one is is a you know $15 repro and the other one is is an original cuff title
0: sure did you have to like uh sort of dig deep and and go to a military dealer to get that original cuff title
1: um, no, I, I I purchased that just from one of the, the usual vendors that, that everybody gets their stuff from. Um, I know that they they are becoming scarce now. There are still some available online, I think. Um, but it seems that in the last sort of 10 months, a lot of the ones that were available online have been purchased. So the one that I saw still had the RZM tag. So I immediately thought, right, well, I'll have to have that. But I would like in the future to pick up one of the army pattern ones because there is a difference that a lot of people won't know between the SA pattern and the army pattern. And there are actually several different types as well, which is is, is an ongoing project in research terms to find what the actual differentiations are between those types. Because a lot of people on, um, you know, the access history forums and, and similar sort of websites will, will refer to, oh, well, that's a type three cuff title and it's working out what the difference is between a type 3 and a type 2 and, and so on and so forth. Um, and then there is the additional complication that we found examples of a really late war pattern, as you see with a lot of other uh, divisions which had cuff titles, where it's essentially just um, a felt band with the inscription on it. And those existed as well. So we've had those made up as well, which is fantastic.
0: But it's, it's finding out how common those were. That's really cool. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that distinction between the uh, the essay pattern and the army pattern because that's something that I think is still being debated to some extent um, in like the collector side of things, where um, you know there there's kind of a consensus, but um, sometimes people will say, "Well, I don't think that's the case," and they have their reasons for thinking that. So it's um, I love the little details like that. I think it's really interesting.
1: Well, by my understanding, there certainly is an essay. Cove title pattern which would have been given to the vast majority of the uh, Grenadier Regiment when it was raised to that um, honour title as it were uh, in August 1942 but the army specifically had a probe piece drawn up that would be the basis for all future cuff titles which appears to be a slightly different colour and then from there you can also find historical examples which are totally different to um, the existing and they're almost like an olive brown rather than a, an sa brown or a sort of tan brown or a light brown they're almost like um they're almost similar to a gi sort of color gi uniform
0: color perhaps a bit darker it's really interesting yeah i think they just they just couldn't standardize the colors you know even even in cases where they wanted to or where it was deemed important they just had to make so much stuff and it was the realities of a, a wartime economy and it's like the stuff kind of there's, there's, I think, almost endless variation, even with something that should be pretty straightforward. A, a cuff title for one formation suddenly becomes this, you know, like yeah. you say, multiple types and, and so on.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, to, I mean, to represent this in the unit, I wear a cuff title that's a slightly different color to uh, everybody else's cuff titles currently. And I think that going forward, we'll probably try and bring that distinction forward as well uh, with the new cuff titles once we've got those made up. Um, sure. And people always ask about that. They always, interesting, I mean, and people, I mean, reenactors. They always ask, you know, why is your cuff title a slightly different colour to everybody else's? And then I can explain, you know, this is this is why it's the it's the it's the production. We don't actually know why this is the case. It's probably to do with the availability of materials, um, or because you know they started this production run with a particular type of material and then moved on to using something else. Um, and it's just another interesting element to the division's history. What was it that drew
0: you to the Feldherrenhalle impression?
1: I mean, I've always been interested in um, the SA as a formation, as as in as an organisation, and it's seeming uh, a lot of people view it in in the sort of histori- histori- me, the historiography as disappearing um, from the sort of front line of of the regime's politics, which isn't true by any means when you actually dig into the history of it. But uh, I think the vast majority of, of reenactors, or at least a, a large portion of reenactors, have this interest in the Waffen SS, and. On discovering this formation, which the Russians in their history refer to as the Waffen SA, I was immediately fascinated by what this meant and, you know, how could such a formation exist? And I think that most people would agree that if you look at the average HIA formation or the average Luftwaffe formation, or even some of the SS formations, you would see former SA men that were serving in the army, just in a regular duty. But to see... A formation that was specifically composed from both SA men and, and USA recruits that were fed through this elite organization. It's just absolutely fascinating to see the history of it and the fact that it hasn't been um, discovered
0: before. Sure. I, I think the SA are a really interesting organization too. I think that the um, SA Wehrmannschaft organization that existed during wartime to assist in like military training of paramilitary organizations, I think that's really interesting and uh, definitely would tie in with the Volksturm interest as well um, but as you mentioned yeah there is the, sort of this like pervasive belief that around the start of World War II the essay were just evaporated or whatever and of course that is not the case and why do you think it is that uh, there's sort of this popular history approach that, that kind of uh, leaves the essay out of the wartime story I think it's more due to lack of knowledge and, and also the sort of um, appeal
1: of the SS in, in everything. And, and you know, people see the SS, they see the camo, they see, uh, you know, what what the SS was doing, and they think, you know, that's the, the vanguard, as it were, of the regime. The reality, of course, is, is quite different. It, you know, the, abroad, beyond Germany's borders, you might have seen the SS as the norm. But in, inside of Germany and inside of the territories which were intended for annexation, the SA was used as the sort of front line of Germanization. So... When a lot of people think that the SA just disappeared after 1934, in 1940, when Alsace Lorraine was annexed back into Germany, immediately they formed new SA units to be the, um, as I say, the vanguard of this Germanization process. And then throughout the occupied territories, you had the SA Standarte Feldherrnhalle, the elite organization guard unit from which the division Feldherrnhalle drew most of it, or many of its recruits. They were used as a sort of garrison formation. To, uh, for example, in Prague, and Warsaw, they were used as, as a formation to kind of instill the strength of the regime there uh, and to police it. They, they were sort of like a, I, I don't know what the right word is, a, a garrison is probably the best way to describe it, but a political um, ethnic garrison, if that's the right sort of term to use. They, they were intended for that strictly political purpose, but they were also a militarized unit at the same time. Um, and it's, it's it's fascinating when you look at the history of the essay in that sort of use, when it, when it after 1939, continued to be relevant, continued to be at the forefront of, of uh, Nazi Germany's in, almost imperial ambitions. And the vast majority of people have absolutely no idea of that. They just think that, you know, the Night of the Long Knives, 19, 1934, the essay ceased to exist. it just, poof, gone. Um, the opposite is true. Obviously, it, it suffered that period of decline uh, between about 1934 and 1936, But then onwards from there, uh, under the leadership of Victor Lutzer, the new Stab Chef, they slowly built the organization back up, worked on raising new standarte. And then you get the war year. Obviously, the war years, the the war broke out in 1939, uh, and huge numbers of SA men were drafted into the army. I think at first it was about. 30% 30% of all SA men in 1939, and then that almost immediately rose to uh, 60%. And then by, by sort of late 1940, 90% of former SA men had been conscripted. And a lot of them volunteered as well. There were SA generals that fell in combat as early as, as August, uh, sorry, as early as September 1939 uh, in frontline combat. Um, and, you know, most people have absolutely no idea about that, but it's, it's still a really interesting subject to see, uh, you know, to, to,
0: to research and to discover. I agree. I think in the hyper focus that the SS often get um, a lot of really interesting stories, like the wartime history of the SA, get swept under the rug, and I think that's a shame. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really to do with with sort of the
1: more uh, generic appeal of the the SS and, and things that people like, like the camo and, and so on. You obviously you don't see that with the SA, um, but the SA and it, its its integral part in in the Nazi regime's conduct of the Second World War is is just fascinating, especially elements like, as you say, the Wehrmannschaften, uh, the importance that that had in, in training all German men that weren't already in, in some form of armed service, and also the fact that the Volkssturm was essentially, in many parts, trained and, and built up by the SA. So so a lot of the time you had Volkssturm units that were led by SA, uh, Gruppenfuhrer, and so on and so forth, uh, and a lot of these men fell in combat as well. The, the um, commander of the SA's Pardon me, the commander of the Volksstimme in Berlin, who I believe, believe was either an SA Gruppenfuhrer or Obergruppenfuhrer, fell in frontline combat in, in, in uh, April 1945. And, you know, it wasn't just this sort of amorphous bureaucratic organization that stayed behind uh, the front line. It was very much involved in all elements of, of the war effort from the actual organizational side of things. So the morale on the home front, um, building up that sort of war winning war winning atmosphere and attitude, the training element, and then also, you know, policing beyond Germany's borders. And a lot of people just, you know, they have no idea that this was even a thing. So it's, it's very interesting to have the opportunity to talk about it and to, and to make more people aware of it and to give them the opportunity to research it as well.
0: I think when people think of the essay, they are thinking of like the archetypal political Nazi, the brown-shirted, confzeit guy who is in pubs fighting against communists. Have you guys had any sort of complaints or or recriminations, or have you faced any pushback about doing a military unit that's linked to this paramilitary organization?
1: We have, not from members of the public, because... Obviously, they, they so far as I'm aware anyway, certainly none of them have, have come up and said anything, but they have no idea what it is beyond the, the Brown Coftel, which could just as easily be confused for, for example, Africa Corps. But from other reenactors, we've had comments as well. Um, you know, there was one reenactor that said, uh, why would you want to portray something linked to, to something as odious as the SA? Which, to me, seems like quite a silly comment when you think about the sheer volume of, of SS reenactors or... Just here, here reenactors that portray units which committed grotesque atrocities. Interestingly, so far as we're aware, um, Halle, as a military formation never committed any atrocities. There is something about the 93rd Infantry Division uh, near Leningrad um, possibly being involved with an atrocity, but we don't know if Halle, which was only a regiment uh, as part of that division at the time. Was involved in that at all, but beyond that, there's there's no evidence, so far as I can find, that they were involved in any atrocities. I'm certainly not saying that extols them from any any guilt in any capacity for anything. Um, but it is interesting to note why people get there get so wound up with regards to this particular unit. I think it's the pop culture view of the essay, as as you say, as the the campsite, um, you know, uh, beating people up in pubs and fighting on the streets and uh, Kristallnacht and, and and things like that that gives the essay this sort of view. When obviously of course the essay was used for that purposes by the by the regime the reality is 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 certainly in the
0: wartime quite different sure no i think it's really funny um how we reenactors seem to like to make these arbitrary distinctions you know that such and such a unit is maybe uh off limits or unsavory to portray whereas uh These other SS units are are totally given the green light. And of course, to the uh, average person on the street, if you're wearing, say, a a World War II German helmet with a swastika on it, it doesn't matter if you're portraying, you know, the air raid protection police, right? Like this is appalling to them. And, uh, you know, we kind of put up these walls, I think, that really these distinctions are totally meaningless to the overwhelming vast majority of people.
1: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I'm certainly not saying that you know people shouldn't do impressions um, because of these reasons. I, I think when you boil it all down, it's all a little bit silly to to make that distinction. I mean, why 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 should somebody that portrays Großdeutschland have the right to complain about somebody who portrays das Reich? You know, I mean, GD committed atrocities as well. Um, so it all become it all becomes swings and roundabouts. So it all becomes a little
0: bit silly when you when you boil it down to that sort of stage.
1: I think yeah. I mean should,
0: we're we're talking about the Nazis here. You know what I mean? It was like the the Holocaust happened. They were yeah. they were taking an oath to Hitler. You know, it's like I think people tend to forget the big picture. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and that that in a sense is is
1: one of the reasons that makes portraying. Um, this essay-linked unit so interesting is that you you get the opportunity to to recognise its role in all of this, but also to to show that it you know it still existed as a, a relevant force in the regime's internal politics in the regime's internal workings, uh, and and was ultimately part of this vast organisation that was you know uh, also part of the Holocaust as well.
0: I think you know it's interesting to think about the educational perspective or the educational uh, potential of of doing an essay-linked group that maybe um, the average member of the public who's mostly interested in learning about um, what a canon looks like or something might not take very much from that, but maybe there's an educational value in presenting that t- for other reenactors.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I I don't think we would ever be able to work it into a a public discussion unless it was, you know, for the purposes of, as you mentioned earlier, a museum or something similar to that. I would love to see um, a sort of campsite essay impression for the purposes of that education to show that a lot of the time these were... um, you know, down and out ordinary men that became wrapped up in, in this this ideology, this this thing that obviously led on much later to the uh, to the atrocities. But at the time, their perspective would have been completely different, and it would be interesting to see or to try to, to sort of bring that impression around. I remember being in Berlin uh, at the Deutsches Museum there, and they had side by side the uniform of I think it will it was certainly before the seizure of power of an essay man. The kepi and, and and you know the breeches, all of that sort of kit, and it, it even had a, a trumpet with it as well, or a bugle rather. And then beside that was a I'm not sure what the organisation is called, but the the um, Communist Party of Germany's equivalent to the SA man. Uh, I think it was the Red Front Fighters League, and they had them side by side and. It, it, the captions were, you know, talking about the social history of the fact that these people might have been, um, you know, they might have been working class. They might have been quite similar to each other. They might have come from similar backgrounds, but different perspectives, different worldviews had had pushed them apart from each other and, and put them into this sort of position. And I think that would be something really interesting to have um, for educational purposes to to bring to the fore, so people could could read or could you know, uh, learn about this side of the history. Obviously, it's not directly related to World War II, so it kind of falls out of the parameters of what we're talking about today. But it would certainly be interesting
0: to see it. I agree. I think it relates even more to our time in some ways than, than the combat history of World War II relates to our time. Um, Ye- you know, and it's it's so dense, too. It's it's such an interesting story. Like, um for example you could you could talk about how many people who were in the SA after 1933 had been in the German KPD Communist Party before 1933 and of course there would be people who would say oh okay well that's an apologist thing to say you know but um the the Nazis point e- were eager to point that out after 1933 for their own propaganda you know that many people eventually saw that our side was right and came over so it's it's just a really complex subject, and I think it's really interesting.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the, the sheer number of former communists and former social democrats that ultimately went over to the uh, to the regime should be, if anything, uh, you know, uh, maybe not a warning, but a, a view of how people can change as soon as their basic material conditions are met by, by a system. You know? I think a lot of people would find that quite interesting, that as long as these people were given work, as long as they were given decent living standards, their, their ideological position completely disappeared which is in and of itself fascinating.
0: It's chilling in a way, and it's so different from what I think a lot of people have today as a conception of ideology, where it's this thing that is fixed. And if you made um, ideological statements five years ago, you know, that revealed that you feel one way or another, that you're kind of locked into that forever, but that's not the way human beings work.
1: Yeah, I I completely agree. I think that the way that people see politics the way that people see ideology ideology today is that it makes them unable to perceive another person as a human being perhaps perhaps past all of that opinionating and, and politicizing which is extremely dangerous and you could definitely relate that to you know the struggles of those men back then um but I, if we ever see coming out of this uh, uh, an essay and a, a red front fighter's impression i think that would be that would certainly be fantastic to see but i, I think that might just be a dream at this stage uh, sure. In terms of in terms of um, the paramilitary impression, ultimately what I am certainly working on uh, is is impressions which represent the division um, from its beginning to end. So the division was obviously formally raised to a division in, in uh, June 1943. But what I would like to do uh, over the course of the next year or so is build up an impression which represents the Standarte, uh, probably so, sort of around 1938 and go on from there until the Panzer Corps in 1945. I, I, and myself and another member of the group are currently in the process of getting the SA Standarte impressions together. Uh, when we will ever have the opportunity to show those or, or to demonstrate them in any capacity, I'm not sure. But it is something that we will do at some stage. And it, it's more to show this this completely unique element um, of the history that has never been seen before, I don't think. It, I think there was one group in Eastern Europe that that did a portrayal of it, but I'm not sure um, how well it was done. Just looking at some of the pictures, it looks like the, you know the cuff titles, for example, are are totally
0: wrong. Um, but we'll see. We'll see what comes of it. It's certainly something that's on the cards at the moment. It sounds like a cool project, and I hope for your sake that someday you guys will be able to do some kind of uh, 1938 scenario immersion event as the uh, SS Felter to Halle. I think that would be really cool. I, I wish.
1: I I don't know what we could do. Perhaps the invasion of, of the uh, invasion of Czechoslovakia, which they were actually involved in, but we'd have to find some Czech reenactors to surrender to us, which I'm not sure they would be too keen on doing. I took a Panther store, M42 Feldbluse. And this is in an era when boiling your uniforms was actually the fad. And I boiled this uniform into nothing. And it reduced itself into a, um, a woolen soup. It's really different to do reenactment in France, Italy, or even England, because there are countries that suffered from the war. In Switzerland, people are quite open, and I never got any negative reaction.
0: There was a time where I thought, oh man, we're going to really be struggling with recruits this year, but I don't know if it's because people were sitting at home twiddling their thumbs because of COVID, but our recruitment actually has astronomically risen. The Reenactors Corner, bringing history to life. All right, Ludwig Tov, uh, this has been a great conversation. Unfortunately, we are out of time for this episode. Uh, if it's okay with you, I'd like to keep the conversation going. We could record a bit more for a future Patreon episode, if that works. Yeah, I'd, I'd be overjoyed to do that, yeah. Okay, excellent. So... Um I guess to all of the Patreon supporters, thank you very much. And we really appreciate your help, without which we wouldn't be able to do this podcast. And we hope that you will tune in to listen to the rest of this conversation. Um, Ludwig, thank you very much for doing this episode. My pleasure. Um, So uh, for now, to Ludwig and everybody else out there, I will see you in the field. Before we go, you may want to check out Fela Kopf
1: over at german-worldwar2.com, that is german-ww2.com, where they sell lots of pocket litter and a lot of cool paperwork stuff. And you can get 7% off of your next purchase there by using the discount code PODCAST2020, that is PODCAST2020, at checkout.
0: Once again, uh, and as always, thanks to Mike, a.k.a. Retro Man, for editing this podcast. Thanks, Mike.